Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the past few weeks, we've seen Saul have an encounter with God and come to conversion. And then last week, we saw God speaking to Cornelius. And that was a bit of a turning point, because Cornelius was a Gentile, and the Jews weren't quite ready for this thought that God would speak to and be interested in the welfare of the Gentiles. But then he had this vision, and God spoke to Peter as well, and brought the two of them together. And as a result, Peter began to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, at the end of that passage, we notice that because of Saul's conversion, for a brief period in time, the persecution that the early church had faced began to die down a little. It says in Acts 9.31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. Unfortunately, what we find is it was quite short-lived. Now, the author Mark Twain once said, the secret of humour itself is not joy but sorrow. There is no humour in heaven. That was Mark Twain, not me. Because I don't agree with that. I think heaven will be filled with the sound of laughter. I think it's filled with the sound of laughter now as God laughs and occasionally weeps with us. And I think when we get there, we will laugh as we see our Heavenly Father face to face. We will laugh with joy. But just now, sometimes I can imagine God It says we're made in the image of God. And so if we have a sense of humour, I think God must have. And and I can just imagine him sometimes looking down and just smiling at our antics. (laughs) Uh, I I think he could be rolling this morning. And I think there are times and things that we do that particularly would put a smile on his face. And one of them is when we have been earnestly praying for something and then totally fail to recognise when he answers our prayer. I'm sure that has him in stitches at times. I think God enjoys laughing with us. And I think he delights when he surprises us with answers to prayer that are beyond any level of expectation that we might have. And then when he sees us finally realise what he's done for us. I had a friend who once said, while I was praying, expecting very little, God had already done something great. So great that I had a hard time accepting the answer. God does have a sense of humour, doesn't he? 
And as we recognize how much he does for us, we can actually join with God and laugh with him. The laughter of heaven. But as we move on in Acts, we find the disciples aren't laughing. They are experiencing some really dark days. And Luke interrupts his account about the expansion of the church to give us a little bit of comic relief here. Because he tells us one of those accounts of the interventions of God which answers the very prayers that people are still praying. We read in Acts 12, starting at the beginning of the chapter. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. But when he saw this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. These were dark days. These were dark days for those early believers. The Herod that is referred to here is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was around at the time Jesus was born, and who ordered the murder of the innocents, as it's called, where he wiped out all the young boys to prevent Jesus remaining alive. He's the nephew of Herod Antipas. Now that's the Herod who had the head cut off of John the Baptist because he was beguiled by an erotic dancer, for want of a better way of putting it. There was something in this family that was ruthless and nasty. And certainly none of the Herods we're going to let anything get in the way of their political ambition. They ruled the province, but under the scrutiny of the Roman Empire. And they were well known because they showed no compassion and no integrity. Nothing got in their way. So here's the church. It's already gone through a persecution sparked by the death of Stephen, which was caused by the fact they were getting under the skin of the Jewish authorities. Now they had a bigger problem. They were getting under the skin of Herod himself. They were threatening his power. And so he took action. We read that he had James executed. Now, James was one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus chose. And together with his brother, John, they were the sons of a guy called Zebedee. And they had a nickname. They were called the Boanerges, the Sons of Thunder. Now, you don't get a nickname like that for no good reason. What could you be like to earn a nickname, the Sons of Thunder? I reckon you'd have a strong personality. I reckon it means you could kick up a bit of a storm if you put your mind to it. 
And so you can imagine, if these guys were going around preaching about Jesus, they would have really got on Herod's nerves. Hmm. Yeah. So here they were. Eve was asking if it was the same two brothers that wanted to know which of them was going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. That, that was it. Now, James, along with Peter and John, was also part of Jesus' inner circle. When you read the scriptures, you find that he had a number of spheres around him. He let different people in closer to him. We know that the 12 disciples spent a lot more time with him than the others, the bigger crowd. But actually there was this group of three that also spent time with Jesus when the others weren't around. And you can read about that in Luke 9, 28 to 36, which is where the tr transfiguration happens. And you can read about it as well at the raising of Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, 51. But James is the first one of these twelve to be martyred. And yet Luke devotes one simple verse to his death. Now when we read about the death of Stephen, he devoted 75 verses to his death. Why? Well, I think possibly it shows where Luke's real interest lay. It wasn't with the death of an individual. It wasn't, in fact, with the death of Stephen. But it was because Stephen's death was a catalyst that spread the gospel out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And James's death doesn't have the same impact. And so he simply covers it with one sentence. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. He was executed. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, having then gained the favour and backing of the Sanhedrin, Herod takes the opportunity to push a bit further. And he has Peter arrested as well. But this was during one of the main Jewish religious festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows immediately after the Passover. And the custom was at the time that they wouldn't have allowed a trial to take place during that feast. And that's why Peter was imprisoned to stand trial after the feast was over. Now, at this point, things are looking good for Herod. Because with two quick, decisive actions, he's got the Jewish Sanhedrin on his side, which is unusual. And he's started to rein in this problem of the early church, because he started to deal with the Christian leadership. And I reckon he was probably feeling quite pleased with himself. But then Luke gives us one small glimmer of hope it says in verse 5 so Peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying to God for him Herod had overlooked one thing that actually our God is sovereign 
over everything. So as we read on from verse 6, it says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly an angel left him. Sorry, the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting it was so. They said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. So the passage starts off looking good for Herod. Peter's in prison and Luke spends quite a bit of time dwelling on the security arrangements. We know he was guarded by four squads of four soldiers. He was chained between two guards, there were sentries at the door, there were two other lines of guards, and he was behind an iron gate. Now, that for the day was the maximum security wing. But on the other hand, the church was praying. And then we read of Peter's escape. The angel tells him to get up, to get dressed and follow him. And it it seems that Peter isn't quite sure what's happening. He isn't really aware of what's going on as he goes past the guards. And it's only afterwards that he seems to come to his senses. Now it's interesting. Previously, when Peter's had a vision, his response was, surely not, Lord. Yet this time... He's done what he was instructed without any comment. He seems to be learning. 
and his attitude's different. Whereas in chapter 10, after the event, he says, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism. On this occasion, he's full of certainty. And he says, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me. He's begun to see God's sovereign control in what is going on. He'd been set free because the church was earnestly praying for his release. Now, if you'd been Luke, how do you think you'd have recorded this event? How would it have gone in the papers? Church prays, Peter freed. Church, church's part in prison breakout. Luke, true to form, tells it like it is. Even though the church had gathered and was praying for Peter's release, they obviously weren't full of faith. Because it says, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back in without opening it. And exclaimed, Peter's here. Oh, you're out of your mind, they said. I mean, this is where I have to start laughing. Can you imagine it? They have been praying for Peter's release. And then when he turns up at the door, Rhoda is so surprised she forgets to let him in. And when he finally is allowed in, everybody else is astonished. What did they expect to happen? It gets me to a point where I think, although they were faithfully praying, they weren't full of faith. But the important thing is God chose to fulfil a prayer that was offered in unbelief. How often do we pray for things where we actually struggle to believe that what we're praying for might happen. And what this passage shows us is that does not limit our God. What it should do is actually it should give us hope, it should give us faith, and it should give us the energy for perseverance because however much faith we may or may not have in a situation, if we pray, God will answer because he is a faithful God. And then we see what is almost an aside to the main story. And it just creeps in at the end. But it finishes off this account about Herod. It tells us about what happened the next day. And it's in verse 18 onwards. It says, In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He'd been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and now they joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, 
a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. It's a great little passage. It's a great little passage. You know, in the morning there was no small commotion. Can you imagine it? After Herod had made a thorough search for him and did not find him. I mean, it was meant to be in the cell. How much of a search can that take? I don't imagine the cells were that well furnished. Okay, you could look in all the corners. You could look under the stool and on top of the stool. But I think that would be about it. That might be it. Did he look behind the poster? We now know what sort of films Milk watches. <laughs> so Herod takes out his displeasure on the guards with a swift execution. And that just backs up the type of guy he was. He was ruthless. If you got on the wrong side of Herod, you didn't have a head for very long. And then we hear of this argument with the people who lived in Tyre and Sidon. And we don't get told what it was about. But Herod's way of bringing this argument to a head was to cut off their food supply. As you might expect, that makes them more amenable to his way of looking at things. And so they come to him to plead for a reinstatement of their food supply. So Herod hears their representative, who has that unfortunate name, Blastus. I mean, if you're picking names for your kids and you want a biblical name, I suggest that's one you avoid. And he seems to reply with a political speech. He wants to make sure that there is no doubt about his point of view. And so he gives a public address. Now, he obviously was softening his position a bit. Because when you look at the reply people gave him, it would otherwise come across as a strange one. They say, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. What that tells me is he was beginning to give them what they were looking for. So they started to butter him up a bit. They gave him some praise. They elevated him in their eyes and said, oh, Herod, you have such wisdom. That's the voice of a God. That's not a mere mortal speaking. But in pleasing Herod, God got upset. 
And Herod makes the mistake of accepting the praise that is really due to God. And God didn't like that. So he takes his vengeance out on Herod. And I love it. Immediately, so he still sat on his throne, in his robes. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And he was eaten by worms and died. That's the point. It doesn't say he died and was eaten by worms, which, let's be honest, will happen to most of us one day. Actually, he was eaten by worms and then died. Herod, who had denied food to others, became food. There's a certain justice in there somewhere, isn't there? But then, this remarkable thing we find, as we go through Acts, it keeps coming back, that the word of God continued to increase and spread. How many times have we seen that? When the Holy Spirit fell on people at Pentecost, the word of God spread. When there was a healing outside the temple, the word of God increased. When there was an argument between the Greek and Hebraic speakers, the word of God increased. And now, someone is struck down and eaten by worms. And what's the result of it? The word of God continued to increase and spread. Something's happening here. People are seeing the truth. They are seeing God at work. And so a chapter that started with dark days for the church ends with something quite different. We've seen the deliverance of Peter. We've seen the death of Herod. There's triumph for the word of God. The mission to the Gentiles is beginning. And the gospel is spreading further towards the ends of the earth. Now that sort of rapid reversal can only come through the power of prayer and the sovereign hand of God. So what is there in this passage for us to learn from? I think there's something in here about how we deal with those dark days. We all have periods when times don't feel good where it's hard work, where things seem to be against us. In fact, scripture tells us. It tells us to expect them. It says, in this world, you will have troubles of many kinds. Now, how many of you think that's true? Yeah. Certainly some days, I have enough. I have enough. And the Bible tells us every day has enough troubles of its own. So how do we deal with those dark days? Do you turn to God in prayer? Or do you hold your head in your hands? What do you do when you don't feel you have sufficient faith that God can break into a situation and change it? Do you pray anyway? Or do you give up? What about those things that make God laugh? Do you recognise the answers to your prayer? 
might not be the answer you were expecting, and often it doesn't come from where you were expecting it. But actually, do you recognise God's answers to your prayer? And do you give him the praise and glory he deserves? Or do you slip into being just a little like Herod and actually let some of it be reflected on yourself? Herod paid the price for taking glory that was due to God. The church saw God's sovereign hand at work, even when they weren't full of faith. And this gives us a wonderful platform for the next phase of the church spreading throughout the world. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.